Are you gonna barf? Tell me if you're gonna barf because there's a can behind you. I won't barf. I will be truly displeased if you barf anywhere but in that can. Not gonna barf. Miss Chapman, no one's gonna mess with you here unless you let them. This isn't Oz. Women fight with gossip and rumors. The animals, the animals, trap, trap, trap till the cages fall. Ginger Ginger broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, gave him a clout, and landed on his back. Fuck you. I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is, oh shit. I'll be Talking about revolution. What I saw, that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me. Here. Why not? You took them. Yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I am worthless. As bad as I come. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Before we get going with today's postal themed episode, let me just remind you that if you have any questions or comments, Oz related or not, you can send those along to InsideOzPodcast at gmail.com, on social media by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast, or you can send me a message over on Reddit if you come and find me in the Oz subreddit over at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Oz show under the username Inside Oz Podcast. So today we're looking back at Series 3, Episode 5, US Mail, spelt as in the gender rather than the postal service for some reason. Written by Tom Fontana and Bradford Winters, although for some reason this credit doesn't appear on his IMDb, and directed by guest director Steve Buscemi. Born December 13, 1957 in Brooklyn, New York, his father a veteran of the Korean War and his mother working as a hostess at the hotel chain Howard Johnson's, Steve grew up in Valley Stream, Nassau County, and attended Valley Stream Central High School where he competed for the varsity wrestling team, as well as being part of the school's drama troupe, graduating in 1975. After briefly attending Nassau Community College, Steve left in order to study acting by enrolling at the Lee Strasberg Institute in Manhattan. Between 1980 and 1984, Steve worked as a firefighter in the New York suburb of Little Italy, working for the fire department of New York's engine company 55. During this time he made his TV acting debut, appearing in an episode of Not Necessarily the News in 1983, and two years later would make his film debut in The Way It Is, as well as the short film Tommy's. Leaving his role as a firefighter to focus on acting full-time, Steve would continue to act in films throughout the rest of the 1980s in titles such as Sleepwalk, Parting Glances, Slaves of New York, and Mystery Train, as well as on TV with credits for Miami Vice and The Equalizer, as well as a recurring role on the CBS miniseries Lonesome Dove. In the early 90s, Steve appeared in Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, both directed by the Coen brothers and forming a partnership that would stretch for several more movies, before appearing in his breakout role in 1992's Reservoir Dogs playing Mr. Pink, although he'd have much preferred to have been Mr. Purple and sure as hell wasn't keen on tipping his waitress. That same year, Steve made his directorial debut with the short film What Happened to Pete, which he also wrote and appeared in. Following the success of Reservoir Dogs, Steve found roles much easier to come by, appearing in movies such as Rising Sun, Airheads, a cameo role in Pulp Fiction, and Desperado as well as appearing in the Coen Brothers directed The Hudsucker Proxy in 1994. After a guest appearance on Homicide Life on the Street in 1995, Steve directed his first feature film Trees Lounge the following year, returning to Valley Stream which appeared as locations throughout the film, as well as appearing in Escape from LA, the underrated sequel to the admittedly better Escape from New York, 1997 cult classic Con Air playing the part of the Marietta Mangler Garland Green, an uncredited role in 1998's The Wedding Singer, and also starred in Michael Bay's blockbuster Armageddon, 
1998's highest grossing film worldwide, and a film where science and logic certainly takes a back seat. Continuing his relationship with the Coen brothers, Steve appeared in 1996's Fargo and The Big Lebowski in 1998, both financial and critical successes, while in 1999 Steve's only acting credit came for the Adam Sandler comedy Big Daddy, before directing Here on Oz. Holding an 8.5 on IMDb, the episode originally aired on August 11th, 1999, a day on which a total eclipse of the sun occurred in Cornwall, England, lasting 2 minutes 6 seconds. Warring sides in the Congo declared a 9-day ceasefire to allow for the vaccination of over 10 million children against polio. And the Kansas City Board of Education deleted virtually every mention of evolution from the state's science curriculum, a decision which Governor Bill Graves described as being out of sync with reality. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. So says the United States Postal Service in their sunshine motto, adapted from the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. Now, back then, Swift could have meant a year and a day. Now, it's 10 a.m. the next morning anywhere, from here to Cucabamba. People all over the globe every afternoon stand at their mailboxes wondering what might be inside. You never know what to expect. And in Oz, most times, the best part is the expectation. So Act 1 gets underway with Augustus in his postman garb, reciting the creed of the US Postal Service, which is derived from Book 8 of the Persian Wars by, as he mentions here, the Greek historian Herodotus, describing the Angarium, the ancient system of postal workers used by the Persians in their war with the Greeks from 500 BC to 1449 BC. The phrase was transcribed by Professor George Herbert Palmer, a professor at Harvard University, in around 1870, although I couldn't find a definite date for that, and is inscribed on the front of the James Farley Post Office building in New York. While not the official motto of the US Postal Service, the phrase was provided by William Mitchell Kendall of the McKim, Mead and White architectural firm who designed the building. In addition to this one, the Postal Service also has a second unofficial motto based on the poem The Letter by Dr. Charles W. Eliot, who was president of Harvard University at the same time that Palmer made his Herodotus translation, inscribed on the old post office building in Washington, D.C., now the Smithsonian Institute's National Postal Museum. Cucabamba, for those interested, is a city in Bolivia located close to the Tanari National Park and site of the Cristo de la Concordia, a 34-metre-tall statue of Jesus Christ and the second tallest of its kind in the world. With similar designs, it is 4 metres taller than Rio's Christ the Redeemer, but 2 metres shorter than Christ the King in Schwibodgen, Poland. Although that design cheats a little bit by having Christ wearing a crown, which probably gives it the extra 2 metres. We get the crime flashback of William Cudney, which sees him digging out his sniper scope and shooting a young child who's out with his dad down at the local park. And he is charged with murder in the first degree, and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. We've seen him for a couple of episodes now, but William Cudney is played by William Coates, or William Cote, I'm gonna stick with Coates, and is somebody that I could find precious little information for online. Literally, all that I could find is his real name, William Krushvitz, a birthday and place, July 30th, 1968, in Methuen, Massachusetts, and his only previous acting credit prior to Oz was as Officer Frank Keane in five episodes of Homicide Life on the Street, from 1997 to 1999. He does have a longer resume, but in terms of his background, that is as much as I could find. Much like with Jason Kramer in the last episode, I've got to wondering why Cudney hasn't been sentenced to death if he's been convicted of first-degree murder, and I think I've come across something which might explain it. While a state might retain the death penalty as an option, it would be down to the prosecution to seek it at trial. So in the case of Shirley Bellinger, the prosecuting lawyer obviously stipulated that they were seeking the death penalty, while in the cases of Jason Kramer and William Cudney, they decided not to pursue that and settled on their relevant sentences. Cudney is sat explaining to Ryan and Cyril about his crime, saying that the man that we saw in the flashback was a doctor that performed an abortion on Cudney's wife, who got the procedure without telling him. And Ryan tries to rationalise that Cudney aimed for the doctor, but got the kid by mistake, perhaps thinking that Cudney hadn't allowed for wind direction. 
Goodney, however, says that he shot the kid on purpose, and that now the doctor knows how he feels. Ryan leaves, disgusted at Goodney, and this is something that we've seen come up on the show before. Oz is full of some of the worst people you're ever likely to meet, from white supremacists, to murderers, to rapists, but they seem to have some sort of unwritten code with regards to crimes against children. Or at least most of them do most of the time, but we'll cover that in due course. And what Cudney has done here is fucking cold. It takes a special kind of cunt to not only murder a child, particularly in such a predetermined fashion, but to feel justified in doing so. Other reasons why Cudney would have been given the death penalty could be that having two child murderers on death row would have been a bit of overkill, and we also need someone to get Ryan the chloral hydrate. Cyril asks Cudney if he knows what he's going to say to his victim when he gets to Heaven's Gates and that he already knows what he's going to say to Preston Nathan, assuming that they let him in. Cut to the gym where Ryan is waiting for Cyril to begin training, but Cyril arrives late and says that he doesn't want to box, or more specifically, he's been told by Cudney that he doesn't have to box and that God doesn't want him to. Ryan says, okay, no boxing today, and denies that he's mad when Cyril asks him, advising Cyril to listen to what Cudney has told him. They leave the gym, but before we go, we see Hamid training with Arif, and he is looking impressive. Ernie Hudson Jr., much like his dad, is in tremendous shape, and I pity the fool who has to step in the ring with him. Ryan heads up to what used to be the classroom in Series 2, where Cudney is preparing for the Christians' upcoming prayer meeting, asking if Ryan wants to join them. On the board, he's written, And I saw another angel come down from heaven, which is Revelation 18.1. And there's another part that he started to write, but is part of a different verse. Ryan picks up a Bible, skips to a random page, and quotes Jeremiah 10.19. Woe is me, this is a sickness, and I must bear it. He's lucky that he landed on something with some prominence, and not something like Jonah 2.10. The prayers are over quickly, though, as Ryan smacks Cudney in the face with his Bible, telling Cudney to go and tell Cyril that he's fine to box, but to never speak to him again afterwards. Ryan jokes that he never had much use for the Bible before as he leaves, and he spots Gloria across the way with McManus. Unsurprisingly, Gloria still doesn't want to talk, and McManus moves Ryan along. Ryan heads downstairs, nearly wiping out some poor sods with a door in the process, and meets up with Kenny, Jr. and Poet. And Ryan actually calls Kenny Bricks, which I think is a first for someone outside of their group. He asks about checking out the competition for the boxing, as we see that Kenny is the unfortunate one that's been drawn against Hamid. Poet seems confident that Kenny will wipe the floor with him, but Ryan doesn't seem so sure, especially when Kenny says that he's going to go and get high beforehand. Despite Ryan questioning the logic, Kenny compares himself to Mike Tyson, saying that he parties, then fights, then parties some more. Presumably, Kenny sees Mike Tyson as some sort of hero, seemingly inspired to follow in his footsteps by landing himself in prison. They head off to get high and Ryan passes Chucky as he goes, asking him to put five Grovers on Khan to win the fight later on. The Grovers he's referring to are that of Grover Cleveland, the 22nd and 24th President of the United States, who appeared on the $1,000 bill from 1928 until it stopped being printed in 1945, and was recalled by the Federal Reserve in 1969. So Ryan is laying a pretty big bet on Khan, which Chucky mentions, but Ryan says that he has money to burn at the moment. No mention of particular odds on this fight, but with a stake that high, Ryan would win himself a fair chunk of change. He then heads over to Amid and tells him that Kenny has been talking smack about the Muslims, and that maybe it was time he was taught a lesson, Hamid saying that he already intends to do so in the name of Allah. We get a shot of Ryan looking to do his drink spiking trick, but even he's laughing at the idea of Kenny winning this one, and he puts the bottle back on the shelf untainted. And with that, we go to the cafeteria for the final fight in round one of the tournament. Kenny Bricks Wangler versus just plain old Amid Khan. He hasn't got time for gimmicky nicknames. Kenny is doing his absolute best to get blown up before the fight has even begun. He's jumping up and down, and he's shadow boxing and clearly still under the effects of his own stash. The fight begins and Kenny manages to fire off a couple of solid jabs, and JD Williams actually shows some pretty decent footwork. I mentioned about most of the actors having virtually no experience prior to filming these fights, 
But JD Williams must have trained at some sort of level, even if it was just recreationally, because that is footwork you don't just learn on the fly. Kenny's onslaught doesn't last long though, as he's rocked by a strong hit from Hamid. And there's a good shot of Murphy just shaking his head. He knows that this isn't going to go much longer, even just after that one shot. A couple more strong shots and Hamid zones in for the win, knocking Kenny out cold and progressing to the semi-finals. Ryan gives an unconscious Kenny some shit, saying that he's more like Cicely Tyson than Mike, as Chucky pays Ryan his winnings and Hamid's hand is raised in victory to close the scene. I did have to look up Cicely Tyson as it was a name that I was unfamiliar with, but at this time she was perhaps best known for her role in 1972 Sounder where she was nominated for an Academy Award as well as a Golden Globe, and two years prior to this had received critical acclaim for her role as Stephanie St. Clair in the movie Hoodlum. She'd also won three Emmy Awards, and from 1981 to 1989 was married to Miles Davis. These days she's perhaps best known having received widespread critical acclaim for her role as Constantine Jefferson in 2011's The Help, as well as How to Get Away with Murder on ABC. We get an Augustus vignette about receiving a mysterious package, sometimes from a relative, or sometimes from the Unabomber, a reference to Ted Kaczynski, a former maths professor who killed three people between 1978 and 1995, as well as injuring 23 others in a nationwide bombing campaign aimed at people involved with technology at the time. Responsible for the FBI's longest and most expensive investigation to date, he is still alive and serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at ADX Florence, also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, in Fremont County, Colorado. We go to the cafeteria where Kenny encourages Poet to open a letter bomb of his own. Yo, some Muslims fuck with us, that's how I turn the fuck with them. Since I got back in Oz, right? I ain't been writing no poetry. But I got inspired by something I saw the other day, so this poem right here is dedicated to the Minister Kareem Saeed. That's it. I figured you easy. All you wanna do is get your palm greasy. Capitalize. See, fucking America been in your eyes for more than 450 years. And now you want to hide your tear in your so-called Allah-given mission to help your brothers. Well, Allah gave me vision, and I'm going to tell all the others. Talking about revolution. What I saw, that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. Now you happy because now you can manipulate her think. Well, I'm gonna put you on to something while we locked up in here in this clink. Why you trying to get us all to the heaven above? When she forget about your contradictorial ass? <laughs> Make sure you hide them bloody gloves. Saeed at first looks somewhat flattered that Poet is dedicating a piece of work to him, even after he told him not to but things soon take a turn and he's giving a thorough dressing down by Poet in front of all the other inmates, capped off with that devastating line about hiding the bloody gloves. That is of course a reference to the O.J. Simpson murder trial which had gripped America from June 1994 to October 1995, Simpson being suspected of killing his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and her lover Ronald Goldman, and the Aris-like glove found at the murder scene, a huge piece of incriminating evidence which turned into a complete farce in court, one of many botches from the prosecution, ultimately leading to Simpson's subsequent acquittal. This episode came two years after a civil lawsuit found Simpson to be liable for the battery of Nicole and the battery and wrongful death of Ronald Goldman, leading the Simpson paying $33.5 million to the Goldman family. That is only the tip of the iceberg with regards to the O.J. Simpson story, and I can't emphasise how important it is that you sit down and watch Ezra Edelman's O.J. Made in America documentary from 2016. I cannot recommend it enough, it is absolutely essential viewing. With all the inmates talking and the disapproval of his followers, Saeed heads back to his pod to pray, 
but Arif and Hamid enter and tell him that with his humiliation going from private to public, he has disgraced the entire group and that he's finished. And they then offer him an ultimatum, her or them. Said questions what they mean by finish, basically asking are they planning on killing him, but Arif says that they will look for a new leader. Said heads for a meeting with Trisha, and he even calls her by her given name at this one, but she is on the verge of tears and explains that she's been receiving threatening phone calls, and she gives Said a tape from her answering machine. Big fat dirty timestamp right there, surely people aren't still using tape answering machines in 2020. There's another big dirty timestamp coming up in a couple of episodes time, but I'll talk about that then. Saeed takes the tape and goes to leave, but before he does, he asks if Trisha has changed her phone number. She says that she has, but she's in a bind as she can't just uproot to somewhere else, and is worried about whether or not whoever has been calling her will discover where she lives. She doesn't understand why she's been told to stay away from Saeed, but he tells her not to worry and that he'll run it by Zelman. Trisha doesn't want to stay away though and says fuck him, apologising for saying fuck in front of Saeed, but Saeed repeats it back to her and they share a hug, with Saeed seeming to really embrace it. We know that he has an ex-fiancé prior to his conversion, but we don't know exactly how long it's been since Saeed was romantically involved with someone, or how long ago that conversion occurred, so this could be the first time that he's had romantic feelings for some time, possibly even a number of years. We cut to the computer room where Saeed confronts Hamid and Arif with the answering machine tape, asking if they're responsible. Neither man says anything, but Arif's look away implies their guilt, and Saeed predates Maximus Decimus Meridius by saying whoever it was will pay in this life or the next, before throwing the tape at the glass, leaving with his one loyal follower, Nassim. We go to the shower room where Saeed is composing himself, but he's in there with Ryan who is scrubbing away at his arm and it is red raw as he says that he's removing his tattoo with Shannon's name, which I don't recall him ever having before and if he did it was too small to notice. And I think this scene may have been moved from earlier in the episode as well because if you look in the background of the cafeteria scene of Poet, you can see that Ryan already has a bandage on his arm. He talks about his breakup from Shannon as well as his continuing love for Gloria to close out at one. When I got married, I got my wife's name tattooed on my arm. It's pretty stupid, huh? Like a marriage is ever gonna last as long as a fucking tattoo. I told Shannon that I wanted a divorce because of what I feel for Gloria. <laughs> I still love Gloria. And I try to fight it, but I can't. She's under my skin, man. She's under my fucking skin. Act 2 gets underway with Chico asking Adabizi why he hasn't given the order to take out the homeboys yet. But Adabizi says that he doesn't want them dead because that will likely start a war between them and the other homeboys, referring to those housed in other units, and El Cid agrees and says that they need to make it look like an accident. Adabizi wants Junior and Poet taken care of first because he has his own plans for Kenny, something which we'll come back to later. For now though, McManus comes over and wants to speak to Kenny because he has some bad news. He tells Kenny that his wife has been killed execution style and was found with another man, who Kenny acts as though he was friends with. Mamana says that he's scheduled some time with Sister Pete so that Kenny can talk and that Kenny's son is okay. He asks if there's anything he can do, but Kenny just wants to know if the cops have any leads, Mamana saying that they think it was drug-related and that he'll see what he can do with allowing Kenny to attend the funeral. As McManus leaves, the three of them wait a moment before breaking out into fits of laughter. And I can see why, because there are parts of this scene which make McManus look like a fucking idiot. He's looking to Junior and Poet and seems to notice their lack of reaction, but Kenny's whole demeanour should have been all that he needed. Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles and Andrea Pacelli could have been in this scene and all of them could have seen through Kenny's act. We've talked before about McManus being naive and seeing the best in everyone, and we'll see how this develops, but if he doesn't call Kenny out on this at some point, he comes out of this looking like an utter moron. 
The homeboys leave to get high as we transition to another Augustus vignette. And as I was re-watching this, I got to thinking about why Jason Kramer's crime flashback of him sending the body through the mill wasn't in this episode to tie in with the theme of these vignettes. The more that I thought about it though, the more I realised you'd have to move a whole bunch of other stuff which in turn affects other plot threads, so it probably ended up in the right place after all. Augustus reads an anonymous prison letter, describing the outside world as never changing, while Kenny attends his wife's funeral, wearing a very ill-fitting suit and leather jacket, but his absence from Oz for the day provides Adebisi with his chance to strike, and we get that in the kitchen. He motions over to Chucky who gets his guys out, and Ryan makes a quick escape with Cyril. On Adebisi's command, the Latinos attack Junior and Poet from behind, wrapping towels around their neck and choking them unconscious. Adebisi plays the most brutal part in this game, because of course he does, as he pours a boiling soup over Junior and Poet's faces, sending them to the hospital with horrific burns. Leo questions the kitchen workers, who of course didn't see anything, and Murphy calls for a lockdown as Kenny returns to MC. He enters his pod and asks Junior why they're in lockdown, but as he pulls the bedsheet away, he reveals Simon Adebisi, the original Simon Adebisi clean-shaven, bald head and back to his original hat, laying in the bed, arms crossed like Dracula, raising up to welcome Kenny back. El Cid is watching from across the way, and we see Adebisi get down from his bunk, and whatever power Kenny had has evaporated in an instant, and he is in a whole world of trouble. I fucking love this scene. It is one of my absolute favourite moments on the entire show, easily in my top five across all six seasons. That reveal of Adebisi back to his classic look was fucking expertly done. We've had flashes of him reverting back to his old self since he returned from the psych ward, but I adored the fact that we didn't get a scene of him transforming back into this classic look because we're seeing it from Kenny's point of view. When he left Oz that day, Adebisi was docile and combing his hair with a plastic fork. Upon returning, he's locked away with a predatory menace, and no one can help him. I can't heave enough praise on this scene. The attack on Junior and Poet was the latest in a series of brutal incidents that we've seen on the show. The only minor gripe I have with it is that when Adebisi is pouring the soup, it doesn't quite land on the faces. It gets both of them more in the shoulder, so they have to writhe around and get into a better position to get it on the faces. But on the whole, a great scene and the highlight of the series so far. We leave Kenny and Adebisi to get reacquainted and join El Cid and Miguel in their pod. El Cid asks how Miguel is getting on in the Victim Offender program and whether or not he's met with Rivera yet. But Miguel is still only at the stage of talking things through with Sister P. El Cid asks what they talk about, Miguel just saying this and that. And El Cid says that Miguel will stay safe so long as this doesn't connect to that. And with that, we head off to another meeting between Miguel and Sister Pete, who tells him that there is no guarantee about what will happen once he meets with the Riveras, which catches Miguel off guard as he seemed to think that the meeting would have been one-on-one. -on -one. After some gentle persuasion, Sister Pete gets Miguel to describe the day of the attack. So why don't you tell me what you did to Eugene Rivera? Well, you know what I did. I don't know why we gotta waste time rehashing it. We have all the time we need. And it's very important to articulate what you've done. So, when was it? Um, it was last summer. Why did you do it? I don't know. You know, I was all fucked up and shit. Some stuff going on. And uh, I got tense. I don't know, you know, it, it, it just, just, just happened. What just happened? What did you, Miguel Alvarez, do? Shit! I, um... Cut his eyes really bad. How bad? I stabbed him. You know, I, I stabbed him. His eyes, you know? The scalpel. the floor 
Like to sit down. She asks Miguel why he did what he did, but Miguel says that they've already been over that, and that he was suffering from stress and tension. But Pete wants to know specifically why it was him that did it, and that eventually he's going to have to explain why to Rivera, because he will ask. Miguel says that he will tell Rivera when the time comes, and that the reason he isn't telling her is because he doesn't owe it to her. We fade to Pete then meeting with Rivera, who's holding a pendant with Christ on the cross, saying that he wants to speak to him, but he doesn't hear his voice and he throws it down onto Pete's desk. All that he hears are his own voices, but they're not giving him any answers as to why this happened, as Pete explains that what happened wasn't his fault, and that God isn't going to answer in a booming voice, but instead he'll answer through talking with Miguel, and asks Rivera what he wants to say. Rivera, being a gentleman and playing by Keller's no swearing at nuns rule, doesn't want to say his piece in front of Sister Pete, but she assures him that she's a big girl and can take it as we close out Act 2. I hate you, Avarice. You fucking motherfucker. Because of you, I gotta carry around all this shit in the dark. If it wasn't for Tina, I would have killed myself already. Sometimes I think I should kill myself for her sake, so she could start a new life without me. Some days, Alvarez, I wish you would have killed me instead of doing this. I can't cry anymore. Did you know that? You made it so I can't cry. The makeup on Rivera's eyes when he pulls his sunglasses off was pretty spot on, I thought. It struck a good balance between being shocking but also being a healing wound as we have had a passage of time since the attack. It was gruesome but not over the top, so good work there. Certainly better than Metzger's concrete face. So Act 3 kicks off with McManus reminding us all where things are at in his storyline with regards to Claire as he has a chat with Murphy in his office. Murphy predicts Harvey Weinstein 20 years in advance. Years ago, a woman complained of workplace harassment. No one believed her. No one even cared. And mentions that McManus has fucked every woman that's ever worked in Oz, apart from Sister Pete. McManus says, so what if he's slept around? It's always been mutual, and he's never had to force himself on anyone or use his position to get someone in bed. But Murphy tells him to prove it by not letting the state settle the lawsuit, and to have Gloria, Diane, and Sister Pete act as character witnesses. McManus doesn't think that the odds are in his favour, but Murphy gives him a look and reminds him that they never are, as we cut to McManus meeting with his lawyer, who is once again played by Enid Graham, meaning that I have to rescind her membership to the Oz One and Don Club. I was sure that we never saw her again, but here she is, turning up in a quick scene. She tells him to prepare to have his face in the papers and on TV, but she's hopeful that this whole thing will blow over quite quickly, but even then... But Manus will have to carry the stigma for the rest of his life. Sister Pete is in the staff room with Gloria and they're talking about what they've heard regarding the lawsuit, which seemed oddly placed as they go over the same thing that we've just had between McManus and Murphy. Gloria says that she doesn't believe what's been said by Claire, but does admit that anything is possible and hints that McManus may have some issues with women stemming from when they dated. Right on cue, McManus enters and asks both of them to be witnesses for his defence. Pete agrees straight away, she's certain of McManus' innocence, but Gloria says that she wants to speak to Claire first to get all the facts, which McManus doesn't take well at all and storms back to his office where he throws all of his papers, his file sorters, everything onto the floor. The only thing that survived was a staple remover. I don't know, maybe that's his favourite bit of stationery. He heads down to Gempop where he meets up with Diane, and it's really dawned on me here how little Diane has been in this series. I mentioned before about how her time on Oz was winding down due to Edie Falco's commitments on The Sopranos, and her exit is imminent, but I'd forgotten just how little she's actually on the show at this point. This is the first time that she's turned up in three episodes, and the few times that we've seen her were in very brief scenes. Chances are that she filmed all of her scenes in a couple of days very early on to accommodate her and avoid any scheduling conflicts with the Sopranos role. Either way, McManus makes small talk asking how her daughter is before having a bit of a mope about feeling a lack of passion. He admits that in a way he is guilty of what Claire is accusing him of, 
guilty in that he used her and not giving a shit about her feelings for him or herself, and that he did the same thing to his ex-wife, to Gloria, and even to Diane. Diane gives him a look as if to say, yeah, you kinda did, but he still asks her if she would have testified on his behalf, and she says that she would have done because what they had was real, even if it was just for a moment. But the way in which she says it, it's almost like she's just humouring him. I'm not convinced that she would have gone through with it. Having said that, I do believe that she and McManus do love each other. But there's so much baggage there, and as McManus has admitted in the past, he's practically married to his job anyway. It would have been a struggle to actually make it work. We transition out of Genpop and into the crime flashback of new inmate Yuri Kasijin, who first and foremost needs to sort out that scratch paintwork on his car, but more importantly, he is driven up to the front of a cafe and pulls out an Uzi and starts shooting. He is convicted of eight counts of murder in the first degree, four counts of attempted murder, and illegal possession of a firearm, and is sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Echoing what I was saying earlier about the lack of the death penalty, Yuri has been spared that seemingly for storyline reasons. But had this happened in reality, I think it's safe to say that with eight counts of first degree murder, he would have definitely been heading straight to death row rather than MC. Yuri Kasijin is played by Oleg Krupa. Born Alexander Krupa on March 18, 1947 in Rybnik, Poland, Oleg didn't break into acting until his late 30s, his first credited role coming in the documentary Far From Poland where he did voice work, with his first on-screen appearance coming in nine and a half weeks in 1986. Making his TV debut in 1987 in episodes of Spencer for Hire and Miami Vice, Oleg continued to appear mostly in minor roles throughout the 90s in films such as Miller's Crossing, Undercover Blues, and Fair Game, and on TV in shows such as The Kennedys of Massachusetts, and is another one of those actors that's appeared multiple times on Law & Order but in different roles. In 1996 he appeared in the average even by his standards Arnold Schwarzenegger-led Eraser, and in 1997 appeared as one of the lead villains in Home Alone 3. In March 1998 he appeared on stage at New York's Roundabout Theatre in Terence Rattigan's The Deep Blue Sea, and in 1999 appeared in the movies Simply Irresistible and No Vacancy before appearing here on Oz. So despite being played by a Polish actor, Yuri Kasijin is in fact Russian, so naturally he's been given Nikolai as his MC sponsor. They head to the pod and partake in some of Nikolai's Russian vodka, and then proceed to have a conversation in Russian. The DVD subtitles being as helpful as ever by simply putting speaks in Russian, so your guess is as good as mine as to what these two are talking about right here. When they do decide to speak English, Nikolai asks Yuri if he's come to kill him, but Yuri remains stoic and answers in Russian, so maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. We'll just have to wait and see. We cut to the library where Clayton is explaining Yuri's work assignment to him and how he's expected to help out the librarian and take the book cart around the other units as well as the hospital wards. Yuri remains cold as ice throughout this whole process to the point that Clayton has to ask him if he understands anything that he's saying, and Yuri says yes in English so we're at least getting something out of him now. Clayton tells him to breathe or something every once in a while which was a really good line and it goes a long way to establishing Yuri's character. We've already seen from his crime flashback that he's capable of killing despite his harmless appearance, but he's clearly a very dangerous man and he has something of a Hannibal Lecter quality to him. Yuri takes his book cart to Unit E and he runs into Nappa, who says that he knows who he is and describes Yuri as the most brutal hitter in Little Odessa, which is an area of Brooklyn famous for its Russian and Soviet population, with approximately 600,000 living there, the largest population of Russian immigrants in the Western Hemisphere. Prior to the 1970s, the area was known as Brighton Beach and only changed its name following the arrival of a new wave of Russian immigrants during the Cold War, taking its name from the port town near the Black Sea in Ukraine. Napa holds his hand out for Yuri to shake, even saying that he's extending it in friendship, but Yuri rebuffs the offer, saying that he doesn't need Napa's friendship. As he goes to leave, Napa tells him that the Italians control everything that goes in and out of Oz and if Yuri wants to start something, then he won't see the morning. Yuri isn't intimidated though, and says that Italians are so melodramatic as he pushes his car away. Word gets back to Chucky about Yuri's disrespectful showing towards Napa, 
so he goes to give Nikolai a piece of his mind. Hey. Yes? Got word from Mr. Napa. Your pal, uh, what's his name? Needs to learn a little respect. Kosijin is no pal of mine. I'm a Jew, he's Cossack. In my community, he's feared for his savagery. Chudovicia. You Sicilians think you're so tough. It would cut out your heart, eat it, and not think twice. Yeah, well, you better talk to him before I do. Nikolai being a Jew while Yuri is Cossack, an Orthodox Christian in Russian circles, goes some way to explaining why Nikolai feels threatened by Yuri. He's not the only one, though, as we see the inmates preparing for Lights Out, and Boosmal is asking Rebido what he thinks of Yuri, saying that he tried to talk to him at dinner, but he sat there like the frozen tundra and says that Yuri scares the shit out of him, a sentiment shared by Rebido as we fade to black to close the scene. Really good introduction for this character, and given that bit more gravitas by Rebido admitting his unease at the end there. Rebido has seen virtually everything during his time in Oz. He's been incarcerated for nearly 35 years at this point, so for him to be scared of someone so new to the prison really elevated Yuri. Cut to the next day with Schillinger handing out the mail, once again keeping an eye on Andrew and Beecher, as he passes a letter to Booz Malice. He sits down with the rest of the guys, and he's received a reply to a fan letter that he sent to Miss Sally, and he is over the moon with the signed picture of Miss Sally and the two puppets, Newer and Pecky. Keller shows himself to be a cynical bastard and says that the autographs are fake and done by a machine. He does concede that Miss Sally's might be real, but then he and Beecher get into a debate about how Newer could write one if he's able to swing a mallet. This is just some daft shit inserted to break the tension of the last few scenes, which frankly this episode needs because it's been pretty heavy going so far. Rebido starts to read the letter that accompanies the photo, and Keller once again plays the cynic saying that it's a form letter and that Miss Sally must get millions of letters every day with tits like that. While he's probably not wrong, he's certainly ruining Boost Malley's and everybody else's fun, so he eventually leaves. Cyril chimes in saying that they should write to Miss Sally again and ask her to visit Oz, and it was nice to see Cyril actually interact with some of the other inmates of his own free will rather than just being by Ryan's side all the time. Ryan says it'll never happen, but that's not going to stop Boost Malice, who leaves to write another letter. Ryan admits that he still wants to fuck Miss Sally, and Beecher reveals that he wants a four-way with Nooter and Pecky. While we've seen that prison can change a man, I wouldn't have thought that Beecher had reached that level just yet. Murphy calls out for visiting hours, and Carlo leaves the Latinos card game. And how many family members do we think will be there this time? Not many, as we now seem to be down to two family members, and even Carlo's dad has stopped coming to visit him. Admittedly, he does have a good reason for no-showing this visit as he's had a stroke, or at least that's what Carlo's been told, and he sits down trying to remember the last conversation he had with his dad. But he's struggling to do so, and he starts to get angry, but he's told to calm down by Officer Armstrong. Augustus describes the concept of a dead letter as we head down to the kitchen, where Leo runs into Clayton. He asks if he's okay, but Clayton looks like a spaced-out zombie, sitting there with an unlit cigarette in his mouth, and says that he wants to know where his father died. Leo tries to pass it off, but Clayton insists, saying that he wants to know, and Leo leads him to where Samuel died. Thirteen steps later, they arrive at the scene of the crime, and we get a brief flashback of it happening, as Clayton squats down to touch the floor. He says that he's been wondering about whether or not the person who killed his father is still in Oz, and that he's constantly guessing as to who it might be with everyone that he comes into contact with. But Leo offers nothing in the way of an answer, so Clayton heads off to talk with someone that might know, that person being Rebido. 17 years ago, a CO was shanked during lunch. Do you remember? So many years, so many killings. They all blend into one. The CO's name was Samuel Hughes. Your father? Yes. Do you remember him? I'm sorry. We have to remember something. I don't, I swear. It's just not good enough. Now I want you to think. Do you hear me, Rebidal? Think. Please. 
You think about my father, you goddamn son of a bitch! Officer. Lucky for Rebido, Ray was there to stop the situation escalating further, but he isn't sure about what to do next, questioning whether or not to mention it to Leo. So he seeks the advice of Murphy, who says that Clayton has made a bunch of mistakes in starting at Oz, and he also asks Diane, who thinks that his father's death allows for extenuating circumstances. She does however say that Ray should sit down with Clayton first to talk things over, showing some level-headedness and sticking by a fellow CEO, as we go to the kitchen where Ray and Clayton iron things out to close out Act 3. Look, Father Mikado, I'm sorry for what you saw. I, uh, I overreacted. You don't have to apologize to me. Rebido, sure. All I want for you to know is that I know how you feel. And so the next time you want to fly off into a rage, you come talk to me. And maybe together we can, I don't know, maybe we can work through it. The only thing that's going to get me through it is knowing who, who killed my dad. Unless you can help me with that, we got nothing to talk about, father. Act 4 then, and we have not one, but two Augustuses in this segment. One singing the song A Dear John Letter, or in the case of a woman, A Dear Jane Letter, and the other explaining the concept of the song's namesake. There have been a ton of cover versions of this song, but it's probably best known for its original 1953 release by Gene Shepard and Ferlin Husky, which went to number 1 on the Billboard Country Chart, and number 4 on the Billboard Pop Chart. Keller meets up with Sister Pete for another session in her office, going over his history with Schillinger from when they were incarcerated together at Lardner. Keller, with a little help from Sister Pete, describes himself as a postulant, while Schillinger was his mother's superior. He tells her that she has changed his mind about what a nun can be, turning on that Keller charm once again, and it's not long before he's turned the tables on her once again, and he's the one asking the questions. He seems to do it all so effortlessly, and they finish the session with him just dropping it in about whether or not Pete feels like she's ever made a mistake by taking her vows as a bride of Christ. With the bell ringing, it's time once again for Keller to go and meet with his ex, who Pete is very complimentary about having seen her last time, but he corrects her saying that she met Kitty, but today he's meeting with Angelique, and we get reminded that he has four ex-wives, having married Bonnie twice. Kitty... Angelique? Bonnie? Is it just me, or does it sound like Keller just rounded these women up from some southern strip club? Pete mentions about having been married herself, which Keller says that he wants to know more about when they meet up again, but Pete is adamant that next time, they'll talk about him, so maybe she's a little more aware than I'm giving her credit for. Keller leaves, saying that he enjoys being with Pete and that she gives good aura, which sounds like an innuendo, which was definitely not a mistake, and which puts a smile on her face and gives her a chuckle once he's gone. She takes a long look at the Christ on the cross hanging on a wall, and we also see Keller making out with Angelique in the visiting room, Sister Pete once again just passing by to take a look at her as we close the scene. Again, great little scene between these two. It's not much of a development from what we saw last time, but as I mentioned previously, Rita and Chris have such great chemistry together really enjoying their screen time together. Cut to nighttime in M-City, and Beecher is woken by Andrew, who's going through drug withdrawal, coughing his guts up and just generally being a bit of a mess. Beecher mops Andrew's brow with a wet flannel, saying that he understands having gone through it himself, and that when he was drying out, he would ask himself why he was being so self-destructive. As Andrew pushes for an answer, Beecher turns around and shows him his arse tattoo. It's a good job that Beecher has gotten over his farting problem, because if he had let one go from that distance, there's no way Andrew could have avoided it. Andrew asks where Beecher got the tattoo, and Beecher tells him that Schillinger gave it to him when he first got to Oz, and that he hurt and humiliated him. He tells Andrew that he hates Schillinger, Andrew saying that maybe they're not so different, and that they don't have to take drugs to get back at him, and that Schillinger doesn't have that power over them. As Beecher talks about how he was alone when he went through his withdrawal, 
a really annoying noise is playing over it. Sort of like a cross between a bee hovering near your ear and somebody wheezing. It's so fucking distracting. Andrew says that he misses his mum, which is something that we never hear about previously. Schillinger never mentions about having a wife or a girlfriend, as Beecher holds him close, saying that things will be okay. At the drug counselling session, Andrew apologises for his previous behaviour, and admits that he's an addict, but that maybe with their help he'll be able to take back some form of control, something that he doesn't feel like he's ever had. Sister Pete welcomes Andrew to the group once again, and he gets a round of applause from everyone, apart from Keller who gives him the slow clap, and it comes across as though he feels like his grip on Beecher is loosening. We go to the gym where Schillinger is working out, and once again, the shape that J.K. Simmons got himself into from the start of the show to this point is like a different person, which is something that seems to have continued in more recent years if you ever saw those pictures of him when they were filming for Justice League. Andrew enters and says hi to his dad, and Schillinger is overjoyed to see Andrew in a clean state of mind, possibly for the first time in years, and asks how he managed it, Andrew saying that he got by with a little help from his friends, signalling the arrival of Ryan, Keller and Beecher who were there to teach Andrew how to wrestle, mirroring more of Beecher's Oz past with Andrew in his place. Schillinger doesn't take the bait though and says that he's just going to stand by and watch, but we soon cut to the mailroom where Beecher pays him a visit. You been looking for me? No. Really? I thought you'd be wanting to thank me for what I did for you. For getting your son off drugs? I mean, I did accomplish the one thing you could never do. I, I saved your boy's life. Fuck you. Burn. You need to adjust your attitude. If not, I got no reason to keep being the good friend to you that I am. Good friend? Yeah. If not for what I have done, then for what I haven't. What's that? I haven't fucked him. At least not yet. You see, because I was there for Andrew when he needed someone holding him, comforting him, I think he's developed a little bit of a crush on me. I've been tempted to at least... Uh, Deep tongue him a couple times. <laughs> but I knew that would upset you, so I haven't. Even though he wants me to stick my dick up his ass. And I'm afraid one of these nights, he and I alone in our pod, I'm not going to be able to control myself. You'll be dead before you get the chance. Mmm. Well, you better hurry. Keller's getting horny, and O'Reilly's been talking about a three-way with Cyril and Andy. Whereas there was a clear balance of power favouring one man over the other in series one and two, this series seems to have Beecher and Schillinger on much more of a level playing field. Schillinger no longer fearing Beecher having regathered his troops, and Beecher now having his own set of allies, despite them being partly responsible for his changes in mental state. His drug addiction was brought on in part by Ryan, and he and Keller are becoming adept at playing mind games with each other, but their one common goal, the one thing that bonds them, is a hatred for and a desire to take down Schillinger. Lunchtime arrives and Schillinger asks to speak to Andrew privately. They head around the corner and Schillinger tells Andrew once again that he's proud of him for getting clean, and gives him a big hug before telling him that he hopes that they can forge a stronger relationship. Andrew, however, tells him that there's no chance of that and that he needs to get back to his pals, but Schillinger tells him that he shouldn't be hanging out with them, and Andrew calls his dad out on the company that he keeps, calling them a merry little band of stand-up individuals, and that when he looks around he sees white faces, black faces, and every colour in between, and that they're all shit and to fuck everything that Schillinger believes, everything he stands for, and he finishes it with a fuck you too. Schillinger slaps Andrew and pushes him against the wall, but Andrew says, you hit me too many times growing up, and tackles his dad to the ground. That line about being hit seemed a bit too crowbarred in just to allude to some past abuse. You could have maybe got the same out of it had the line been something like, that's the last time you hit me, or something close to that, but that's a minor nitpick on my part. Before the fight can really get going, Lepresti and Dignasty are in to break it up, 
Lepresti asking who started it. Schillinger tells him it was Andrew, so he's hauled off to the hall, calling his dad a liar and an arsehole as he's dragged away. In his cell, Schillinger gathers his minions and says that a father does what he can for his children, as we see Andrew in the hall being paid a visit by Lepresti. He says that he has a present from Schillinger, a nice big dose of heroin, and he leaves it in the cell with Andrew. Schillinger proclaims that his son is dead to him as we get the return of the wheezing sound from earlier, and Andrew overdoses on the heroin, dying in the hall cell. Lepresti calls for backup, saying don't bother with the medics, just send for the morgue boys, and pockets the remaining drugs before leaving the cell. The episode closes with guards gathering Andrew's belongings as Ryan and Keller say that their plan worked perfectly, which Beecher agrees with as he looks up to McManus, who's looking down from the control desk, as Augustus narrates about never receiving any mail again. A man does everything he can for his children. He provides for them. Worries about them. Sacrifices everything for their happiness. What's this? It's a little present from your father. But when your own flesh and blood renounces you, you have no choice but to renounce them. son, Andrew, is dead to me. My son is dead. Base 4, this is Radio 320. We got a problem here. Prisoners OD'd. We're too late for the medics setting the morgue, boys. So there we go, Series 3, Episode 5, US Mail. Another mixed bag of an episode with some storylines not receiving much advancement, such as Miguel still not yet meeting up with Rivera, and while it's provided some much-needed fun to the show, the boxing segment just took away from something that could have had some advancement, although we did get a dangerous new addition to the cast in the form of Yuri Kasijin. Having said that, the undeniable highlight of this episode is, without question, the return of Simon Adebisi to his truest form. I loved it when I first watched the show, I loved it just as much re-watching it here, that reveal when Kenny gets back to his pod was so masterfully executed, without a doubt the highlight of the series so far. In addition to that, we also had Schillinger making the choice to essentially sacrifice his own son in an attempt to end the hostilities between himself and the triple threat of Ryan Keller and Beecher. Whether his plan has worked or not remains to be seen, but Keller and Ryan certainly feel like theirs has, and I'm interested to see if their alliance sticks now that Andrew has passed on. Get the fuck out of my office. Scenes that were cut from this episode, there was a short scene in which Trisha Ross and Diane meet as Trisha arrives for a meeting with Saeed. They mention about the lawsuit and Trisha asks whether or not Diane knew her brother, which Diane denies. There's also a scene in which Leo and McManus discuss allowing Kenny to attend his wife's funeral in exchange for information about Ronnie Smith to the local police, and we then see Kenny having that interview... And the final scene cut sees Ray conducting confessional with Carlo about potentially causing his father's stroke. Carlo seemingly struggling to comprehend or articulate the whole scenario. The Kenny scene was likely cut for time as McManus has already said that he'll see what he can do about allowing him to attend the funeral, but we didn't really need to see him doing so and we certainly didn't need to see Kenny giving information about a character that we've never met. The confessional between Carlo and Ray doesn't really go anywhere, but I think there's a case to be made for keeping the Trisha-Diane scene in there. 
While it was also likely cut for time and it also lacks any real payoff, having Trisha unknowingly come face to face with her brother's killer was a bit of a curiosity. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Andrew Schillinger, better known as Frederick Kohler. After leaving Oz, Frederick appeared in Bull on TNT, playing the part of Joey Rutigliano, as well as in minor roles on shows such as NYPD Blue, Malcolm in the Middle, Boston Legal, ER and Numbers, as well as appearing across the CSI franchise in Crime Scene Investigation, New York and Cyber. In 2006, he appeared as Les Gay in Pepper Dennis for the WB Network, the final show to premiere on the network before its transition to the CW, as well as appearing in the final season of Lost on ABC. In 2013, Frederick returned to the stage appearing in The Normal Heart in Los Angeles, and also back on TV in 2016 appearing in four episodes of American Horror Story Roanoke, and online in eight episodes of Marissa Romanoff for Amazon Prime. His most famous role post-Oz saw Frederick appear as Lists in the movie Death Race, as well as its three sequels. At the time of recording, Frederick's latest credits are for the TV movie The Sanctuary, as well as the comedy Kombucha Cure, both of which are listed as being in post-production. Also leaving the show for sure this time is Enid Graham, playing the part of McManus Lawyer, but we covered her post-Oz career last episode, so I won't go over that again. My episode MVP, and this probably isn't a surprise considering the praise I've given it this episode, I'm gonna have to give it to Simon Adebisi. Since returning from the psych ward, Adebisi has shown glimpses of his former self here and there, but to keep up that pretense for as long as he had, and to execute not only his revenge on Napa by banishing him to Unit E with an incurable disease, but this brutal, violent return to form by eliminating Junior and Poet as well as seizing the power back from Kenny was a masterstroke on his part, and he's even formed an important new alliance with Chucky in the process. So for those reasons, Simon Adebisi has earned the episode MVP. Fail. Sticking with the post office theme, I figured it was as good a time as any to delve back into the mailbag for some listener questions. This one comes to me from the Oz subreddit from the user Jack's Mannequin, and they ask, Are there any questions you wish had more screen time? The ones I think of straight away, and I'll just have to edit this slightly as we're heading into spoiler territory, but Jack says that Scott Ross was amazing, would have been great to see him in the later seasons. Well, first off, Jax, thank you for that question, and this is something that seems to come up quite often on the various message forums and online communities for the show. And one person who I keep seeing mentioned in that discussion is Dino Alani. Despite only being in one episode, Dino has a hell of a following online. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think Dino was too hot-headed and that Nino wouldn't have stood for it much beyond what we saw. You'll remember he even had to tell Dino not to raise his voice to him at one point. And I think his death happening the way that it did, it went a long way to establishing the tone for the rest of the show, illustrating that anyone could go at any moment. As for Scott Ross, him surviving the riot leaves a huge hole as you'd have to rework the whole Diane McManus relationship and the aftermath of the riot, which then impacts on Saeed in this series and so on. But we did see tension between him and the other group leaders during the riot, which could have opened up some interesting storyline opportunities, but I do feel like he was taken out of the show at the right time. As for who I'd have liked to have seen given more screen time, I think Metzger still had a lot to offer as a corrupt staff member on the side of the Aryans, but I'd probably say that I'd have liked to have seen Richie Hanlon stick around longer than he did once he was back in MC. I'm not saying that he needed to become a lead character or anything like that, but with his return to M-City having had his term on death row ended due to a technicality, that puts him back in the firing line of Schillinger and the other Aryans. Obviously having escaped death once, he isn't going to go through with the whole Schillinger and I killed Vogel together part of the story. So you could have done something with him avoiding death at the hands of the Aryans, especially if Metzger was still controlling M-City. But with Beecher, Keller and Ryan at odds with Schillinger, he could have been an extra ally for them and allowed for strength in numbers. But thank you for that question, Jax, and I'll let you know how you can get in touch with the show in a moment. But before that, if you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Podbean, 
Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, Castro Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, as well as on podchaser.com. There you will find the complete Series 1 and 2 of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 3 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a 5-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can email the show at insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, it's time to look at the US Constitution and our Eighth Amendment rights as we look at Series 3, Episode 6, Cruel and Unusual Punishments. Where Cyril and Chucky square off in the semi-finals of the boxing, Saeed moves in with Beecher, and Ray plays detective looking for answers to help Clayton. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Dear John